Welcome to Volume 4 of Jeeves and the Feudal Spirit. Chapter 8 The days that followed saw me at the peak of my form, fizzy to an almost unbelievable extent, and enchanting one and all with my bright smile and merry sallies. During this halcyon period, if halcyon is the word I want, it would not be too much to say that I revived like a watered flower. It was as if a great weight had been rolled off the soul. Only those who have had to endure the ordeal of having G. Darcy cheese right constantly materialise from thin air and steal up behind them, breathing down the back of their necks as they took their ease in their smoking room, can fully understand the relief of being able to sink into a chair and order a restorative, knowing that the place would be wholly free from this preeminent scourge. My feelings, I suppose, were roughly what those of Mary would have been had she looked over her shoulder one morning and found the lamb no longer among those present. And then, bing, just as I was saying to myself that this was the life, along came one of those telegrams. The first to arrive reached me at my residence, just as I was lighting the after-breakfast cigarette. I added with something of the nervous discomfort of one confronting a ticking bomb. Telegrams have so often been the heralds, or harbingers, or whatever they're called, of sharp crises in my affairs that I have come to look on them askance, wondering if something is going to pop out of an envelope and bite me on the leg. It was with a telegram, it may be recalled, that fate teed off in the sinister episode of Sir Watkin Bassett, Roderick Spode, and the silver cow creamer which I was instructed by Aunt Dahlia to pinch from the first names collection at Tutley Towers. Little wonder, then, that as I brooded over this one, eyeing it as I say askance, I was asking myself if Hell's foundations were about to quiver again. Still, the other thing was, and it seemed to me, weighing the pros and cons, that only one course lay before me, viz. to open it. I did so. Handed in at Brinkley come Snodsfield in the marsh, it was signed Travers. This revealed it was the handiwork either of Aunt Dahlia or Thomas P. Travers, her husband, a pleasant old bird whom she had married at her second pop some years earlier. From the fact that it started with the words, Bertie, you worm, I deduced it was the former who had taken post office pen in hand. Uncle Tom is more guarded in his speech than the female of the species. He generally calls me my boy. This was the substance of the communication. Bertie, you worm! Your early presence desired. Drop everything and come down here pronto. Prepare for lengthy visit. Urgently need you to buck up a blighter with whiskers. Love, Travers. I brooded over this for the rest of the morning, and on my way to lunch at the drones shot off my answer a brief request for more light. Did you say whiskers or whiskey? Love, Worcester. I found another from her on returning. Whiskers, you ass. The son of a whatnot has short but distinct side whiskers. Love, Travers. It's an odd thing about memory. It so often just fails to spear the desired object. At the back of my mind there was dodging about a hazy impression that somewhere at some time I heard someone mention short side whiskers in some connection, but I couldn't pin it down. It eluded me. So, pursuing the old policy of going to the fountainhead for information, I stepped out and dispatched the following. What short-side-whiskered son of a whatnot would this be, and why does he need bucking up? Why are full details, as at present 
fogged, bewildered and mystified. Love, Worcester. She replied with the generous warmth which causes so many of her circle to hold on to their hats when she lets herself go. Listen, you foul blot. What's the idea of making me spend a fortune on telegrams like this? Do you think I am made of money? Never mind what short side whiskered son of a whatnot it is or why he needs bucking up. You just come as I tell you and look slippy about it. Oh, and by the way, go to Aspinall's in Bond Street and get pearl necklace of mine, which they have there, and bring it down with you. Have you got that? Aspinall's, Bond Street, pearl necklace. Shall expect you tomorrow. Love, Travers. A little shaken but still keeping the flag flying, I responded with the ensuing. Fully grasp all that Aspinall's Bond Street pearl necklace stuff. But what you're overlooking is that coming to Brinkley at present juncture not so jolly simple as you seem to think. There are complications and what not. Wheels within wheels, if you get what I mean. Whole thing calls for deep thought. We'll weigh matter carefully and let you know decision. Love, Worcester. You see, though Brinkley quarters are home from home and gets five stars in Bedeker as the headquarters of Monsieur Anatole and Dahlia's French cook, a place in short to which in ordinary circumstances I race when invited with a whoop and a holler, it had taken me but an instant to spot that under existing conditions there were grave objections to going. I need scarcely say that I allude to the fact that Florence was on the premises and Stilton expected shortly. It was this that was giving me pause. Who could say that the latter, finding me in residence on his arrival, would not leap to the conclusion that I had rolled up in pursuit of the former like young Lochinvar coming out of the west, and should this thought flit into his mind, what, I asked myself, would the harvest be? His parting words about my spine were still green in my memory. I knew him to be a man rather careful in his speech, on whose promises one could generally rely, and if he said he was going to break spines in four places, you could be quite sure that four places was precisely what he would break them in. I passed a restless and uneasy evening, in no mood for reverie at the drones. I returned home early and was brushing up on my mystery of the pink crayfish when the telephone rang, and so disordered was the nervous system that I shot ceiling words at the sound. It was as much as I could do to totter across the room and unhook the receiver. The voice that floated over the wire was that of Aunt Dahlia. When I say floated, possibly thundered, would be more the more juiced. The girl heard an early womanhood spent in chivying the British fox in all weathers under the auspices of the Cord and Pitchley have left this ant brick-red in colour and lent amazing power to her vocal cords. I have never pursued foxes myself, but apparently when you do, you put in a good bit of your time shouting across ploughed fields in a high wind, and this becomes a habit. If Aunt Dahlia has a fault, it is that she is inclined to talk to you when face to face in a small drawing-room, as if she were addressing some crony a quarter of a mile away whom she had observed riding over hounds. For the rest, she is a large, jovial soul, built rather on the lines of May West, and is beloved by all, including the undersigned. Her relations have always been chummy to the last drop. Hello? 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 She boomed. The old hunting stuff coming to the surface, you notice. Is that you, Bertie, darling? I said it was none other. Then what's the idea, you half-witted, gardering swine, of all this playing hard to get? You and your matter weighing. 
I have never heard such nonsense in all my life. You've got to come here and immediately. If you don't want an ant's curse delivered on your doorstep by return of post. If I have to cope unaided with that ruddy Percy any longer, I shall crack beneath the strain. She paused to take in breath and I put a question. Is Percy the whiskered bloke? That's the one. He's casting a thick pall of gloom over the place. It's like living in a fog. Tom says if something isn't done soon, he will take steps. What's the matter with the chap? He's madly in love with Florence Cray. Oh, I see. And it depresses him to think that she's engaged to Stilton Cheeseride. Exactly. He's as sick as mud about it. He moons brooding to and fro like Hamlet. I want you to come and divert him. Take him for walks. Dance before him. Tell him funny stories. Anything to bring a smile to that whiskered, tortoise-shell-rimmed face. I saw her point, of course. No hostess wants a Hamlet on the premises. But what I couldn't understand was how a chap like that came to be polluting the pure air of Brinkley in the first place. I knew the old relative to be quite choosy in the matter of guests. Cabinet ministers have sometimes failed to crash the gate. I put this to her and she said the explanation was perfectly simple. I told you I was in the middle of a spot of business with Trotter. I've got the whole family here. Percy's stepfather, L.G. Trotter, Percy's mother, Mrs. Trotter, and Percy in person. I only wanted Trotter, but Mrs. T. and Percy rang themselves in. I see. What they call a package deal. I broke off aghast. Memory had returned to its throne, and I knew now why that stuff about short side whiskers had seemed to have a familiar ring. Trotter, I cried. She whooped censoriously. Don't yell like that. You nearly broke my eardrum. But you didn't say Trotter. Of course I said Trotter. This Percy's name isn't Goringe. That's what it unquestionably is. He admits it. And I'm frightfully sorry, old thing. I can't possibly come. It was only the other day that the above Gorringe was trying to nick me for a thousand quid to put into this play he's made of Florence's book. I turned him down like a bedspread. You could readily see, then, how fraught with embarrassment a meeting in the flesh would be. I shouldn't know which way to look. If that's what's worrying you, forget it. Florence tells me he has raised that thousand elsewhere. Well, I'm dashed. Where did he get it? She doesn't know. He's secretive about it. He just said it was all right. He had got the stuff, and they could go ahead. So you needn't be shy about meeting him. What if he does think you're the world's premier louse? Don't we all? Something in that, yes. Then you'll come. I chewed the lower lip dubiously. I was thinking of Stilton. Well, speak, dumbbell, said the relative with asperity. What's all this silence about? I was musing. Then stop musing and give me the good word. If it will help to influence your decision, I may mention that Anatole is at the top of his form right now. I started. If this was so, it would clearly be madness not to be one of the company ranged about the festive board. I have touched so far only lightly on Anatole, and I take the opportunity now of saying that his was an output which had to be tasted to be believed, mere words being inadequate to convey the full facts with regard to his amazing virtuosity. After one of Anatole's lunches has melted in the mouth, you unbutton the waistcoat and loll back, 
breathing heavily and feeling that life has no more to offer. And then, before you know where you are, along comes one of his dinners, with even more on the ball. The whole layout constituting something about as near heaven as any reasonable man could wish. I felt accordingly that no matter how vehemently Stilton might express and fulfil himself on discovering me, well, not perhaps exactly cheek by jowl with the woman he loved, but certainly hovering in her vicinity, the risk of rousing the fiend within him was one that must be taken. It cannot ever, of course, be agreeable to find yourself torn into a thousand pieces with a fourteen-stone Othello doing a shuffle off to Buffalo and the scattered fragments. But if you are full at the time with Anatole's timbale de vous tout l'océan, the discomfort unquestionably becomes modified. How come, I said. Good boy. With you taking Percy off by neck, I shall be free to concentrate on Trotter, and every ounce of concentration will be needed if I'm to put this deal through. What is the deal? You never told me. Who is this Trotter, anyway? I met him at Agatha's. He's a friend of hers. He owns a lot of papers up in Liverpool and wants to establish a beachhead in London. So I'm trying to get him to buy a boudoir. I was amazed. The last thing I would have expected. I'd always supposed Milady's boudoir to be her ewe lamb. To learn that she contemplated selling it stunned me. It was like hearing that Rogers had decided to sell Hammerstein. But why on earth? I thought you loved it like a son. I do, but the strain of having to keep going to Tom and trying to get money out of him for support has got me down. Every time I start pleading with him for another check, he says, but isn't it paying its way yet? And I say, no, darling, it's not paying its way yet. And he says, hmm, adding that if this sort of thing goes on, we shall all be on the dole by next Christmas. It becomes too much for me. It makes me feel like one of those women who lug babies around in the streets and want you to buy white heather. So, when I met Trotter at Agatha's, I decided that he was the man who was going to take over, if human ingenuity could work it. What did you say? I said, oh, ah, I was about to add, it was a pity. Yes, quite a pity, but unavoidable. Tom gets more difficult to touch daily. He says he loves me dearly, but enough is sufficient. Well, I expect you tomorrow, then. Don't forget the necklace. I'll send Jeeves over for it in the morning. Right. I think she would have spoken further, but at this moment, a female voice offstage said, Three minutes. And she hung up with a sharp cry of a woman who fears she is going to be soaked for another couple of bob, or whatever it is. Jeeves came trickling in. Oh, Jeeves, I said. We shall be heading for Brinkley tomorrow. Very good, sir. Aunt Dahlia wants me there to infuse a bit of the party spirit into her old pal, Percy Gorringe, who is at the moment infesting the joint. Indeed, sir. I wonder, sir, if it would be possible for you to allow me to return to London next week for the afternoon. Certainly, Jeeves, certainly. You have some beano in prospect? It is the monthly luncheon of the Junior Ganymede Club, sir. I've been asked to take the chair. Take it by all means, Jeeves. A well-deserved honour. Thank you, sir. I shall, of course, return the same day. You'll make a speech, no doubt. Yes, sir. A speech from the chair is of the essence. I bet you have them rolling in the aisles. Oh, Jeeves, I was nearly forgetting. Aunt Dahlia wants me to bring her necklace. It's at Aspinall's in Bond Street. Will you toddle over and get it in the morning? 
Certainly, sir. And another thing I almost forgot to mention. Percy has raised that thousand quid. Indeed, sir. He must have approached someone with a more biteable ear than mine. One wonders who the mug was. Yes, sir. Some half-wit one presumes. No doubt, sir. Still, there it is. It just bears out what the late Barnum used to say about one being born every minute. Precisely, sir. Would that be all, sir? Yes, that's all. Good night, Jeeves. Good night, sir. I will attend to the packing in the morning. Chapter 9 It was getting on for the quiet even fall on the morrow, when after a pleasant drive through the smiling countryside, I steered the two-seater into the gates of Brinkley Court and angled along to inform my hostess that I had come on board. I found her in her stuggery, or den, taking it easy with a cup of tea and an Agatha Christie. As I presented myself, she gave the moustache a swift glance, but apart from starting like a nymph surprised while bathing and muttering something about, Was this the face that stopped a thousand clocks? made no comment. One received the impression that she was saving it up. Hello, reptile, she said. You're here, are you? Here I am, I responded, with my hair in a braid and ready to the last button. A very merry pip-pip to you, aged relative. The same to you, fathead. I suppose you forgot to bring the necklace. Far from it. Here it is. It's the one Uncle Tom gave you at Christmas, isn't it? That's right. He likes to see me wearing it at dinner. And who wouldn't, I said courteously. I handed it over and helped myself to a slice of buttered toast. Well, nice to be in the old home once more. I'm in my usual room, I take it. And how's everything in and around Brinkley Court? Anatole all right? Never better. You look pretty roguish. Oh, I'm fine. And Uncle Tom? A cloud passed over her shining evening face. Tom's still a bit low, poor old buster. Owing to Percy, you mean? That's right. There has been no change, then, in this Goringer's gloom. Naturally not. He's been worse than ever since Florence got here. Tom winces every time he sees him, especially at meals. He says that having to watch Percy push away untasted food cooked by Anatole gives him a rush of blood to the head, and that gives him indigestion. You know how sensitive his stomach is. I patted her hand. Be of good cheer, I said. I'll buck Purse up. Freddy Widgeon was showing me a trick with two corks and a bit of string the other night, which cannot fail to bring a smile to the most tortured face. It had the lads at the drones and stitches. You will doubtless be able to provide a couple of corks. Twenty, if you wish. Good. I took a cake with pink icing on it. So much for Percy. What are the rest of the personnel? Anybody here besides the Trotter Gang and Florence? Not yet. Tom said something about someone named Lord Sidcup looking in for dinner tomorrow on his way to the brine baths at Droitwich. Do you know him? Never heard of him. He's a sealed book to me. He's some man Tom met in London. Apparently, he's a bit of a nib on old silver, and Tom wants to show him his collection. I nodded. I knew this uncle to be greatly addicted to the collecting of old silver. His apartments, both at Brinkley Court and at his house in Charles Street, are full of things I wouldn't be seen dead in a ditch with. What they call a virtuoso, this Lord Sidcup would be then, I presume? Something on those lines. 
Oh, well, it takes all sorts to make a world, doesn't it? We shall also have with us tomorrow that boyfriend, Cheese Wright, and the day after that, Daphne Dolores Moorhead. She's the novelist. I know, Florence was telling me about her. You've bought a cereal from her, I understand. Yes, I thought it would be a shrewd move to salt the mine. I didn't get this. She seemed to me an aunt who was talking in riddles. How do you mean salt the mine? What mine? This is the first time I've heard anything about mines. I think that if her mouth had not been full of buttered toast, she would have clicked her tongue, for as soon as she had cleared the gangway with a swift swallow, she spoke impatiently, as if my slowness in the uptake had exasperated her. You really are an abysmal ass, young Bertie. Haven't you ever heard of salting mines? It's a recognized business precaution. When you've got a dud mine you want to sell to Mug, you sprinkle an ounce or two of gold over it and summon the Mug to come along and inspect the property. He rows up, sees the gold, feels that this is what the doctor ordered, and reaches for his checkbook. I worked on the same principle. I was still at a loss and said so. This time she did click her tongue. Can't you grasp it, you chump? I bought the cereal to make the paper look good to Trotter. He sees the announcement that a Daphne Moorhead opus is coming along and is terrifically impressed. Gosh, he says to himself, Daphne Dolores Moorhead in everything. Milady's boudoir must be hot stuff. But don't these blokes want to see books and figures and things before they brass up? Not if they've been having Anatole's cooking for a week or more. That's why I asked him down here. I saw what she meant, and her reasoning struck me as sound. There is something about those lunches and dinners of Anatole's that mellows you and saps your cool judgment. After tucking into them all this time, I presumed that L.G. Trotter was going around in a sort of rosy mist, wanting to do kind acts right and left like a Boy Scout. Continue the treatment a few more days, and he would probably beg her as a personal favour to accept twice what she was asking. Very shrewd, I said. Yes, I think you're on the right lines. Has Anatole been giving you his rognon au montong? Oh, yes. Then I would say the thing is in the bag. All over but the cheering. But here's a point that has been puzzling me, I said. Florence tells me that La Moorhead is one of the most costly of our female pen pushers and has to have purses of gold flung to her in great profusion before she will consent to sign on the dotted line, correct? Quite correct. Then how the dickens, I said, getting down to it in my keen way, did you contrive to extract the necessary ore from Uncle Tom? Didn't he pay his income taxes here? You bet he did. I should have thought you would have heard his screams in London. Poor old boy, how he does suffer on those occasions. She spoke sooth. Uncle Tom, though abundantly provided with the chips, having been until his retirement one of those merchant princes who scoop it up in sackfuls out of the east, has a rooted objection to letting the hellhounds of the inland revenue dip in and get theirs. For weeks after they have separated him from his hard-earned cash, he is inclined to go off into corners and sit with his head between his hands, muttering about ruin and the sinister trend of the socialistic legislation. And what is to become of all of us if this continues? He certainly does, I assented. Quite the soul and torment, what? And yet despite this, you succeeded in nicking him 
for what must have been a small fortune. How did you do that? From what you were saying on the phone last night, I got the impression that he was in more than unusually non-parting mood these days. You conjured up in my mind's eye the picture of the man who was sticking his ears back and refusing to play ball, like Bottom's ass. What do you know about Bottom's ass? Me? I know Bottom's ass from soup to nuts. Have you forgotten that when a pupil at Reverend Aubrey Upjohn's educational establishment at Bramley-on-Sea, I once won a prize for scripture knowledge? I bet you cribbed. Not at all. My triumph was due to sheer merit. But getting back to it, how did you induce Uncle Tom to scare the moss from his pocketbook? It must have required quite a scuttleful of wifely wiles on your part. I wouldn't like to say of a loved aunt that she giggled, but unquestionably the sound that proceeded from her lips closely resembled a giggle. Oh, I managed. How? Never mind how, you pestilential young nosy Parker. I managed. I see, I said, letting it go. Something told me she did not wish to spill the data. And how is the trotter deal coming along? I seem to have touched an exposed nerve. The giggle died on her lips, and on her face, always, as I have said, on the reddish side, deepened to a colour of rich mauve. Blister has blighted insides! She said, speaking with the explosive heat, which had once made fellow members of the Quad and Pitchley leap convulsively in their saddles. I don't know what's the matter with that son of Belial. Here he is, with nine of Anatole's lunches and eight of Anatole's dinners tucked away among the gastric juices, and he refuses to get down to brass tacks. He hums and... What on earth does he do that for? And haws. He evades the issue. I strain every nerve to make him talk turkey, but I can't pin him down. He doesn't say yes, and he doesn't say no. There's a song called that, or rather, she didn't say yes, and she didn't say no. I sing it a good deal in my bath. It goes like this. I started to render the refrain in a pleasant light baritone, but desisted on receiving Agatha Christie a bath the frontal bone. The old relative seemed to have fired from the hip like somebody in a Western Bee movie. Don't try me too high, Bertie dear, she said gently and fell into what looked like a reverie. Do you know what I think the trouble is? She went on, coming out of it. I believe Ma Trotter is responsible for this non-cooperation of his. For some reason she doesn't want him to put the deal through and has told him he mustn't. It's the only explanation I can think of. When I met him at Agatha's, he spoke as if it was just a matter of arranging terms. But these last few days he has come all over coy, as if acting under orders from up top. When you stood them for dinner that night, did he strike you as being crushed beneath her heel? Very much so. He wept with delight when she gave him a smile, and trembled with fear to frown. But why would she object to him buying the boudoir? Don't ask me, it's a complete mystery. You haven't put it back up somehow since she got here. Certainly not. I've been fascinating. And yet there it is, isn't it? Exactly. There it blasted well is. Curse it. I heaved a sympathetic sigh. Mine is a tender heart, easily wrung, and the spectacle of this good old egg mourning over what might have been had wrung it like a ton of bricks. Too bad, I said. One had hoped for better things. One had.
She assented. I was so sure that that Moorhead cereal would have brought home the bacon. Of course, he may just be thinking it over. That's true. A fellow thinking it over would naturally hum. And haw? And possibly also haw. You could scarcely expect him to do less. We would no doubt have proceeded to go more deeply into the matter, subjecting this humming and hawing of LG trotters to a close analysis. But at this moment the door opened and a careworn face peered in. A face disfigured on either side by short whiskers and in the middle by those tortoise-shell-rimmed spectacles. Hello, said the face contorted with anguish. Have you seen Florence? Aunt Dahlia replied that she had not been privileged to do so since lunch. I thought she might be with you. She isn't. Oh, said the face, still running the gamut of emotion, and began to recede. Hey, cried Aunt Dahlia, arresting it as it was about to disappear. She went to the desk and picked up a buff envelope. This telegram came for her just now. Will you give it to her if you see her? And while you're in here, meet my nephew, Bertie Worcester, the pride of Piccadilly. Well, I hadn't expected him, on learning of my identity, to dance about the room on the tips of his toes. And he didn't. He gave me a long, reproachful look, similar in its essentials to that which a black beetle gives a cook when the latter is sprinkling insect powder on it. I've corresponded with Mr. Worcester. He said coldly, we have spoken on the telephone. He turned and was gone, gazing at me reproachfully to the last. It was plain that the Goringes did not lightly forget. That was Percy, said Aunt Dahlia, a reply that I had divined as much. Did you notice how he looked when he said Florence, like a dying duck in a thunderstorm? And did you notice, I inquired in my turn, how he looked when you said Bertie Worcester? Like someone finding a dead mouse in his pint of beer. Not a bottomless bird. Not my type. No. You would scarcely suppose that even a mother could view him without nausea, would you? And yet he is the apple of Ma Trotter's eye. She loves him as much as she hates Mrs. Alderman Blenkinsop. Did she touch on Mrs. Alderman Blenkinsop at that dinner of yours? At several points during the meal, who is she? Her bitterest social rival up in Liverpool. Do they have social rivals up in Liverpool? You bet they do, in droves. I gather it's nip and tuck between Trotter and Blenkinsop as to who shall be the uncrowned queen of the Liverpudlian society. Sometimes one gets her nose in front, sometimes the other. It's like what one used to read about the death struggles for supremacy in New York's 400 in the old days. But why am I telling you all this? You ought to be out there in the sunset, racing after Percy, bucking him up with your off-color stories. You have a fund of off-color stories, I presume. Oh, rather! Then get going, laddie. Once more into the breach, dear friends, once more. Or close the wall up with our English dead. Yikes! Tanny ho! Hark forward! She added, reverting to the Argo, the hunting field. Well, when Aunt Dahlia tells you to get going, you get going, if you know it's good for you. But I was in no cheery mood as I made my way into the great open spaces. That look of Percy's had told me he was going to be a hard audience. 
I had gotten from it much of the austerity which I had noticed in Stilton Cheesewright Uncle Joseph during our get-together at Vinton Street Police Court. It was with not a little satisfaction accordingly that I found on arriving in the open no signs of him. Relieved, I abandoned the chase and started to stroll hither and thither, taking in the air. And I hadn't taken in much of it when there he was, rounding a rhododendron bush in my very path. 